Hi, this is Alan Alexandrov again. I am a senior editor with the Oxford Journal Global Summitry, and we're continuing a discussion with uh, Dan Dudeny, uh, a political scientist, international relations specialist from Johns Hopkins University. Part one of this two-part interview, we examined Trump policy around trade and trade protectionism, and also climate change policy and the environment, all of which were looking at the impact on the liberal order in the international system. Part two today focuses on Syria, Russia, and the big question, what's the impact of all these policies on the U.S. role in the liberal order? I am looking forward to this further discussion, and I do hope you enjoy this as well. Let me take you over to another area of kind of Trump perspective, and you identified it as what appears to be a foreign policy of uh, unpredictability. You already mentioned uh, the issue of Syria, and you indicated that, in effect, uh, Trump policy at the moment uh, with respect to Syria is 180 degrees different from what, again, he expressed on the campaign trail. The question then becomes, we, we've watched Secretary of State Tillerson uh, in Moscow, meetings with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, uh, a meeting with President Putin. Uh, you know, what is the state of America? I mean, many have tried to suggest that the Syria policy is somehow part of a doctrine. Uh, but what is that doctrine, if it is a doctrine? And moreover, what's the state of the relationship with Russia? Well, that is a question that many people uh, would like to have a good answer to. Um, I think that in thinking about the Trump administration and policy, uh, that we need to, in an important way, readjust uh, our standards uh, for assessing uh, what's going on here. Okay. We, we, we have interactions with foreign governments, and we have the promulgation of various statements, and then actions by various agents of the United States government, particularly the military, and somehow all of this is supposed to be coherent uh, and have a, be a policy, uh, perhaps even a doctrine, and there would be all of this high-minded conversation about this. <laughs> that, that's kind of the old model. Right. I think that we need to uh, put uh, on the table as an alternative model that's, that's at least part in play here, which is that the Trump administration is, first and foremost, a, a new type of reality TV show, and that it has a cast of billions, uh, many of them who are not going to get paid anything, of course. Um, and it, it, it's got scripts that uh, are really part of a hybrid uh, genre, uh, a mixture of uh, low comedy and high tragedy. So when we think about you know, the, the basic narrative uh, uh, movement and, and organizing character of this, don't think about George Cannon or uh, Madeleine Albright or um, Richard Nixon. Instead, think about 
Beavis and Butthead meet Sophie's choice. Think about Dennis the Menace meets Dr. Strangelove. Gilligan's Island meets the Manchurian Candidate. Now, it's not going to be entirely that, but that is really a simple way of thinking about what Trump, as this media being, is doing. And, and all of this George Kennan doctrine, uh, high-minded conversation, is something that is very, very alien to his approach to reality and is very, very incompatible with this high degree of opportunistic flexibility that he instinctively is going to be uh, exhibiting. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the relationship with Russia. I don't think uh, that we can fully yet say that it is President Trump. It has to be president in quotes. Until the question of what did the Trump know and when did he know it are answered. There has obviously been a major attempt by the Russian security services to infiltrate and influence the American uh, electoral process. There are all of these people associated with the administration who in various ways were on the payroll of the Russians. And until that is answered, until we have a full accounting, his status as president is essentially provisional. Mm -hmm. Not just in the view of skeptics such as me, but also in view uh, from the standpoint of the overall American political uh, machinery. If he has found to be complicit in efforts to manipulate the, uh, the election, you know, if there are strong links that have been that can be established, there is going to be a legitimacy crisis at the minimum, a uh, first order for this administration, mm -hmm. and there will be strong pressures for an impeachment. So that's the larger story of Trump and Russia. Now, exactly what Putin and company thought they were going to get by involving themselves in this election in this manner are impossible to tell. But insofar as they wanted to make more likely the election of a candidate that is more oriented to their view of things, what has happened is a major backfire, okay? Trump is now got extremely strong political incentives to distance himself from Russia and the Putin regime in any way possible. So that's certainly the, the larger narrative of what's going on with Trump uh, and Russia. And then when you come to the case of Syria, it's like, well, Trump ran on the Iraq war was a bad idea. We should stop meddling in these people's affairs. Uh, look what uh, the Obama administration did in Libya. Uh, this is a disaster. Uh, we need to uh, tend to our own garden. We need to put uh, American reconstruction domestically at the top of the agenda. And then we have a chemical weapons attack, a horrific event, 
and it's vividly conveyed in the media, and Trump appears to have been greatly moved by this, and so suddenly we're engaged in airstrikes, and we have the Secretary of State, uh, Rex Tillerson, making pronouncements about American power protecting innocence anywhere. Now, that's the sort of statement that goes even beyond Samantha Powers. It, it, it's far beyond uh, the, the ambitions of uh, the humanitarian interventionist group in the American foreign policy conversation. And so one wonders how seriously one should take any of these apparently doctrinal-sounding pronouncements, because in several weeks they might be completely confounded by completely different behaviors and perhaps uh, opposite declarative statements. People have said of Trump uh, that when you're in the room with him, he is an extremely charming guy, seems to be following uh, everything you're saying. You, 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 you make an, a, a mutual understanding or a deal with him. And when you walk out of the room, he has no further commitment to it whatsoever. <laughs> it's as if it didn't happen. I see. Now, insofar as the government is run like that, uh, it, it, the credibility of anything that he says is going to be extremely suspect, as it already is in many parts of the world. What are people in the governments of countries outside the United States thinking about Trump now? And the answer certainly would be bewilderment. What on earth is this guy doing? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it then, you know, raises, uh, the, I suppose, the big question when it comes to the liberal order. What Trump uh, declared during his election uh, campaign and articulated at some level was this America first policy. It seems to contrast dramatically uh, with what appears to have been general consensus among previous presidents, uh, first articulated by Bill Clinton, who declared that what we have in the United States and, and policymaking is an indispensable nation. And your colleague, uh, John, John Eikenberry, of course, uh, you know, spent a, a fair bit of time referencing the United States in terms of being a hegemonic power. So what are we then to make of this America first strategy or policy pronouncement now in terms of, you know, the continuation of American leadership in the liberal order? Well, that's a, a, an extremely important question to which we are again uh, left scratching our heads because we don't know really what this guy and these people around him uh, are going to do. But let's step back a minute and look at this uh, set of relations that the United States has uh, with the rest of the world uh, that people refer to as the liberal international order. First of all, much of American behavior has been completely consistent with uh, an American first agenda uh, throughout this period. But it has been a widespread view among the dominant foreign policy elites that the way in which uh, America can be most benefited 
is through the establishment of these various international uh, arrangements, uh, institutions, uh, alliances, and so forth. So the notion that the United States has been pursuing a policy that did not put American interests first, I think is fundamentally incorrect. What we have had during this period is a recognition that the circumstances of the world and the nature, and in part fragility, of Republican institutions domestically require a forward-leaning, institution-building, problem-solving foreign policy in order to meet fundamental American interests, which are shared by a great many other countries. A second observation about the so-called uh, liberal international order is that if we actually look at the content of the international order, we should ask ourselves the question, to what degree are these arrangements actually liberal? And of course, what does liberal mean? Is it liberal or is it liberal democratic? Is it liberal in the sense that we mean it in the United States, which is the New Deal and the various successors? Or is it liberal in the sense that the Europeans use the term, which means conservative Republican free market in the American context? What is this liberal international order? Mm -hmm. And I think that if we step back from that label that we tend to repeat almost like a mantra and actually analyze the components of these different uh, institutions and uh, arrangements uh, that we now lump together under that rubric, if we do that, I think we'll see that a lot of it is non-liberal and a good bit of it is actually anti-liberal. Let's start with the non-liberal parts. Um, the United States, in the course of the Cold War, uh, cooperated with a great many countries, but we cooperated a great deal with the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union, whatever else might be said about it, was not a liberal democratic society. Look at the arrangements, at the institutions, and their importance that we did with the Soviet Union. At the top of that list, of course, would be the regulation of extreme violence capabilities, mm -hmm. nuclear weapons, particularly. Yep. Right? Starting in the early 1960s, the United States and the Soviet Union built. It wasn't just an American leadership. It was this dual leadership. Right? the Non-Proliferation Treaty, before that, the Test Ban Treaty, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties, uh, this network, this web of mutual restraints. That would be at the top of the list. Then you have the governance of these global spaces, the oceans, and uh, uh, I mentioned outer space would be another one, uh, electromagnetic spectrum, international telecommunications union. There's a whole web of international organizations and regimes that manage these extraterritorial spaces uh, and manage these high technology uh, uh, interdependences. Mm -hmm. There's nothing the domestic liberal regime principle about the need to do that. Then we look at health, uh, the World Health Organization. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union led the effort that got rid of smallpox, you know, this global campaign, a systematic eradication of it. 1979, it all was gone. 
Uh, and then that would segue us into science and technology, where, again, we had a lot of cooperation, the International Geophysical Year, culminating in the International Space Station. High technology cooperation, scientific cooperation. During the worst periods of the Cold War, there was scientific collaboration across the east-west divide and a whole range of important large science uh, domains. So I look at all of this type of cooperation, this institutionalized cooperation that's very, very important for meeting fundamental needs of every country. And I say, that's not really necessarily distinctively liberal. Yes, people in the United States who take the lead in uh, advancing this agenda call themselves liberal, but the content of this uh, effort and the participation in agendas of other non-liberal states belies the characterization of it as distinctively liberal democratic. We don't have good language to capture that type of internationalism. Uh, I've suggested that we might think of it as a kind of updated uh, sort of Westphalian internationalism, that the Westphalian system, uh, territorial sovereigns, mutual recognition, has over the last several hundred years, uh, in response to interdependences and mutual vulnerabilities, has been generating a series of international organizations and regimes uh, to solve those problems. And we typically see these regimes as somehow challenging the Westphalian order, but they're actually servicing it in that they are solving problems that the territorial states can't solve on their own. So I think uh, thinking of these arrangements as a Westphalian internationalism has a positive implication for where we might be going because we don't have to be convergent with regard to domestic regime principles to tackle global problems. China and uh, climate change. China is not interested in liberal internationalism. They are, however, very interested in solving this vulnerability that is joint, that is the product of over-reliance on carbon fuels. And so looking at a positive uh, path here, disentangling all of these efforts from the label liberal and from a distinctively domestic liberal democratic regime uh, principle agenda is not bad. It might actually be good for other states buying into these efforts uh, more than they have been willing to in the past. Mm -hmm. So that's the non-liberal part. We also should acknowledge the degree to which there are significantly anti-liberal, certainly anti-democratic liberal elements to the existing international order. And people, you know, talk about regime convergence and, you know, the end of history and now talking about the authoritarian revival. You know, every five to 10 years, we get a, a, a different trend and people are extrapolating that we're going to go in that direction until it's all that. The, the presentism of uh, the commentariat and the punditry uh, needs to always be recognized and uh, help us bracket the 
apparently dominant contemporary trend. Let's step back and look at ways in which the world is converging, uh, and it's not really on liberal democracy. The world is, in some ways, quite united and getting more united as a plutocracy. You basically have got the stratification of wealth. Right? That's a global phenomenon, has, of course, been with human societies from time out of mind. But in the post-World War II era, the Western liberal democracies were able to temper that to a significant degree and create broad middle-class prosperity. That was still an anomaly. Since the end of the Cold War, we've had this notion that we're going to march towards liberal democracy and there's a, a transition or is it a, a slide back from that. We continue to measure our thinking about regimes within governments in the world by that type of metric. When if this misses the fact that regimes everywhere are highly plutocratic in character. Um, and they're plutocratic, like in the United States, uh, that are hiding behind or uh, still uh, in tension with elements of liberal democratic government. But in much of the world, they're raw kleptocracies that rule directly as plutocratic oligarchies. The peripheral world in the stands and in parts of Africa, right? What is the government to a first approximation? It's a looting operation in which a tiny handful of individuals are basically selling off much of the natural resources of the country in exchange for uh, personal and private wealth, which they are doing what with? They're not reinvesting it. <laughs> They're moving to London. They're moving their money to uh, Switzerland and Luxembourg and the Cayman Islands. The, Russia. Russia is a kleptocratic plutocracy, right? The, the, the handful of individuals control the economy. What are they doing with their money? They're not reinvesting it uh, in Russia. They're putting it in uh, London real estate or New York real estate. And so we look at the Trump uh, administration and these uh, features of it that seem so tawdry and so uh, corrupt, it's really a kind of convergence of the United States to what is the global norm. And so how does this all happen? Right? There's, a, there's a set of international institutions, right? the banking sector. How is it that people can evade Taxes. How is it that trillions of dollars of money held by very wealthy individuals in the United States, Western Europe, and Canada are held in the Cayman Islands and places like that, and they don't pay taxes? That's part of the international order. There's institutions that make that possible. I view that and, and the empowerment of the uh, transnational uh, oligarchic, uh, plutocratic network as a type of internationalism that is profoundly anti-liberal, profoundly anti-democratic. Let, let's kind of try to bring this all together in a, in a last question. Let me acknowledge it and, and for the moment accept your notion of, a, a rather than a liberal order, an updated Westphalian order, which has elements of the non-liberal 
and elements of the anti-liberal built into it. It is still the case that we uh, we have these international organizations, uh, you know, collaborative organizations. It would appear that we've, uh, you know, that those of us who have looked at the order, however you want to um, uh, define it, saw a, an impetus for open markets and free trade, or at least trade liberalization of one form or another. Certainly in a lot of the definitions, you would see that there was uh, the notion of support for uh, democratic regimes, although interestingly, and maybe you know, in, in uh, similar to your thinking, that element seems to have dropped out of a lot of definitions of the liberal order for the obvious reason. There are now uh, a number of players in the system, most evidently China, but e even Russia in its kind of diminished uh, Soviet Union form, that are you know uh, significant members of this order. So are you suggesting that, in fact, Trump simply emphasizes or is likely to emphasize going forward many of these uh, non-liberal or even anti-liberal elements of this updated Westphalian order? Well, as to where Trump will go, uh, I uh, reserve uh, <laughs> any kind of judgment. I think, uh, you know, you elect a clown, you're going to get a circus. And the prediction of what's going to happen in this circus is very hard. Uh, but the question you raise is obviously of, of crucial importance. Um, the internationalism that we refer to as liberal uh, has been significantly pro-capitalist internationalism. Mm -hmm. Right. And there was this widespread view uh, among American scholars and foreign policy elites uh, that capitalism and democracy were going to go together. And that uh, we go back and look at the discourse about the uh, accession of the Chinese to the WTO uh, in the early years of this century. Yep. And uh, it was claimed that if we bring China in and China becomes even more and more capitalist, that is going to uh, make more likely and hasten the day in which there will be political liberalization understood in the sense of uh, democratization and uh, accountable government rule of law. It is hard to now look at the developments and say that that view is being vindicated. It may be a question of time horizon. Uh, it may be that there will be uh, internal uh, Chinese moves to establish, if you would, democracy with Chinese characteristics. They're not going to want to ever call it liberal democracy because that's going to make it seem delegitimate in the eyes of substantial constituencies in the country. Mm -hmm. But no ultimate reason why the Marxist communist tradition, which is extremely uh, diverse, uh, Marx himself was actually a very strong Democrat, despite the undemocratic directions that so many of his followers took it. The Communist Party of China, with this tradition of, of Marxist uh, thought, might be able to make various types of internal uh, democratization moves in the future. I, I wouldn't want to rule that out, okay? But the overall trend is towards various types of 
kleptocratic, oligarchic uh, economic systems that find themselves most compatible with uh, authoritarian political arrangements. Mm -hmm. And that might be the equilibrium towards which we are moving. Now, the United States, to sort of shift gears and think more concretely about, you know, policy of trade and so forth, the United States has been trading with countries that have industrial policies of one sort or another. That is to say that they have governments that invest strategically to try and protect certain industries. Now, the United States has a semblance of that in the form of defense spending. Right? We spend $600 billion or so a year on this, uh, and much of it is in procurement, much of it is in high tech. So we have partially an industrial policy, mm -hmm. but that industrial policy is not really aimed at, at generating broad civilian production. The United States is been ideologically opposed to a more general industrial policy. And of course, the main opposition from this has come from uh, the business community and the ideological free market wing of the Republican Party. They have you know, been vigorously opposed to any kind of central direction, uh, any kind of rationalization with regard to investment, direction of investment uh, by state organs. It's unclear whether the United States is going to be able to continue to be as open to free trade as we have been, or exposed to trade, with countries that have robust industrial policies and strong social safety nets without generating something comparable here. That's something that's going to be politically uh, a, a big push. It's not going to uh, come easily for the United States. So... If anything, then, uh, you seem to be suggesting that the, kind of the way forward is questions around uh, American policy with respect to trade. We knew this from the beginning, but it's more in the line of internal changes in order to make America capable of competing with um, uh, the variety of actors that it faces. Is that what we're looking at? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Um, and m it means that combination of worker protection mm -hmm. uh, and uh, various types of industrial policies are going to be necessary. In general, I think that American foreign policies, I've said, is going to be increasingly incoherent, uh, episodic, uh, and erratic. And it's time for the other beneficiaries of these international arrangements uh, that have emerged over the last 70 or so years to step up even more so than they have and take leadership roles in solving problems, both domestically in their own countries uh, and uh, with regard to these international institutions. We have got to stop making the fate of this project dependent upon what comes out of Washington, D.C., because we're not going to be able to rely on that in all likelihood for at least quite a while. I see. Well, really want to thank you, Dan, for describing Trump foreign policy 
and the current state of the liberal order. You've put quite an interesting cast on it in terms of uh, both Trump policy and the direction that the uh, liberal order, as you call it, the updated Westphalian order, needs to move. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.